Now, you might think, why in heaven's name are we talking about Afghanistan in 2021? Isn't that yesterday's news? Well, unfortunately, it's not. Now, you may recall that under the previous U.S. presidency, i.e. Donald Trump, he made a lot of a noise about getting out of Afghanistan. So, of course, you're, you're, I'm sure you're aware the Americans have been in Afghanistan since just after 9-11, because that, of course, was where al-Qaeda was, and that's where Osama bin Laden was. So in the aftermath of the attacks in New York and Washington, in the fourth plane that was uh, retaken over by the passengers and, and crashed in a field in Pennsylvania, the Americans sent a ton of soldiers uh, into Afghanistan to locate bin Laden and to basically bring him to justice as well as the members of al-Qaeda. Uh, Canada was there as well. We were there until 2014, I believe. A lot of other nations were involved. And President Trump made this decision, not necessarily um, an erroneous decision, that after 20 years, it was time to bring the troops home. And he picked May of this year as the date. Now, of course, Joe Biden is now the president. And while he initially made an indication that he would, in fact, consider bringing American troops back, and I'll get back to that in a second, I do want to read you something. I just got this off the Associated Press uh, just the other day. It's dated... Uh, April 8th, so a couple days ago, and this is from Washington, quote, without coming right out and saying it, President Joe Biden seems ready to let lapse a May 1st deadline for completing withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Orderly withdrawals take time and Biden is running out of it, says Biden has inched so close to the deadline that his indecision amounts almost to a decision to put off, at least for a number of months, a pullout of the remaining 2,500 troops and to continue supporting the Afghan military at the risk of a Taliban backlash. So that was written less than a week ago. So it looks like the decision to stay in Afghanistan is going to be prolonged. But I want to point out one other thing that I want to share with you. Actually, two other things I want to share with you. One is I'm going to go through my Twitter feed over the past week. So if you don't, if you don't, if you're on Twitter, um, I'm at Borealis Saves. I tweet uh, daily on uh, terrorism and national security issues. And here are the tweets that I have in the last week alone. I've tweeted at least six times in Afghanistan, so about one a day. Two people died, two people injured in a probable Taliban attack in Gore province. An interesting paper, which I'll get to in a second, or analysis rather, on Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Yes, in 2021. Uh, the Today in Terrorism on Wednesday, the 14th of Afghanistan, st- spoiler alert, is about an attack in Afghanistan. Uh, one dead and one wounded in Kabul, the capital, probably the Taliban. Uh, nine border guards were killed by the Taliban in Herat, which is in western Afghanistan. Then the Taliban then took over the border post. And an article that I, I read off an Afghan uh, site called Tolo News, headline, Afghanistan, 107 people killed in violent incidents in a week. This is dated the 10th of April. So from the 2nd to the 9th of April, 107 people were killed. So data shows that 57 civilians and 49 security force members were wounded in the last week. Now, not all of them were killed in terrorist attacks, but an awful lot of them were. 
And the vast majority of those terrorist attacks would have been carried out by the Taliban. Now, unless you've been under a rock for the past couple of years, you know that the the Trump administration was actually negotiating a withdrawal-slash-peace treaty with the Taliban in Qatar, in Doha, in the Persian Gulf. And at least at one point, the legitimate Afghan government wasn't part of those peace talks, which kind of makes you wonder um, who's at the table and who has the authority to speak on behalf of Afghans. As a complete aside, I did read an incredulous report in Foreign Policy just today. Foreign Policy is a kind of an American think tank uh, written by some people I've never heard of. And it says, uh, the title is Afghanistan needs a weaker president. Decentralizing power can be the key to long-term peace. As if devolving authority to the provinces and cities is going to solve Afghanistan's problems. How about not? They're much more deeply trenched than that. Now, here's the kicker, guys. When the Trump administration was negotiating, quote-unquote, peace with the Taliban, the Taliban promised that if the Americans leave, that they would not allow al-Qaeda to regain a footprint, a foothold in Afghanistan. And here's a report I just read off a site I follow on a regular basis called The Long War Journal. It's quite good. Um, And the guy that wrote it, Bill Bill Rogio, I've been following him for a while. He's he's, he's a good analyst. He's really smart. And he's written this piece. Um, I can share it right now in the chat function if you want. Ah, come here. Where are you? There you go. There it is. I'll just quote from it. Uh, where'd you go? There you go. Al-Qaeda and its regional branch, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, continue to operate across Afghanistan despite repeated Taliban claims that the group has no presence in the country. In all, Al-Qaeda is operating in, and I quote, at least 21 of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. And you think for one second the Taliban aren't aware of this? You think they're not, at at a minimum, turning a blind eye and more likely actually giving some assistance to al-Qaeda, let alone the Islamic State representative in, in Khorasan called Islamic State Khorasan Province? So what does this all mean? Now, already people are weighing in. This is, this is, this is going to be an interesting topic, guys. Here's the problem. We're damned if we do, and we're damned if we don't. The very fact that the Americans and other NATO forces, Germany has just extended its mandate, I believe, in Afghanistan. I tweeted that a couple of weeks ago. The mere fact that we're there is highly problematic because the presence of foreign military troops in a foreign country usually pisses off the locals because things go wrong and civilians get hurt or killed. It actually feeds terrorism. We saw it in Somalia in 2005. We saw it in Iraq in 2003. And we're seeing it in Afghanistan. So that would be a strong argument for not having boots on the ground in Afghanistan. And yet, if we took those boots off the ground today, the Taliban would take over. The Afghan government and its security forces and its law enforcement agencies are nowhere near strong enough to fight back against the Taliban. So we return to the status quo ante. In other words, the early 1990s, up to and past 9-11, where the Taliban were in power. And the Taliban are A, a terrorist group, B, a antediluvian medieval Islamic sect that doesn't like women or all kinds of other stuff. 
And we would turn re- return to a time where it's possible, if not probable, that groups like Al-Qaeda would have the freedom to plan and to grow larger. So you guys are already weighing in. I'm going to have to put my glasses on. I apologize for this. Um, so Dean says, um, in, answer, in answer to Ratnadeep, that's a tough question. It would be a shame to leave with no positive impact, but to put more Canadians at risk with the same effect might be worse. Um, yeah, and then again, it's, the situation, can, I mean, this again, it's, it's the damn if you do and damn if you don't with Afghanistan. That's the problem. So Ratnadeep says, there was in fact a leaked document where U.S. asked Afghanistan to form an interim government to include the Taliban. Well, and I guess, you know what, in some ways that is um, just looking at things realistically, but it, it seems to me that if 20 years later, the best solution is to leave Afghanistan and somehow give the Taliban significant levers of power with the duly elected Afghan government, it could fairly be asked, what, if anything, did we achieve in 20 years? Except the loss of, I think it's upwards of 4,000 U.S. servicemen and women have died in Afghanistan. I think it's over 4,000. Someone said 165 Canadians. You know, I don't know, guys. I mean, I, I don't know what to do with this. I, I, don't, have a, I don't have an easy answer. And, and I wish people would stop, stop pretending there is an easy answer to all this kind of stuff. So Dean says, um, legitimacy can only really be established with, with a monopoly on forced coercion. As the Taliban is still active and dangerous, my guess would be that the Trump administration do not see Afghanistan as in control. Well, they're not in control. Again, you know, you look at the attacks that are taking place on a daily basis in Afghanistan, and this is no, I'm not, I'm not spitting or, you know, dumping on the Afghan uh, National Army or the Afghan Air Force or the Afghan police, but they simply don't have the firepower and are the manpower the Taliban do. The Taliban are uh, acting at will. And again, if you, you follow the, the, the um, Afghan news like I, I do on a daily basis, um, there are attacks daily. Now, not all the attacks are claimed by the Taliban, but 95% of them are the Taliban. So again, we would leave a country in the hands of the very people who not only sponsored, and yes, JP, you are wrong, the Taliban were not Al-Qaeda's enemies. The, the Taliban welcomed Al-Qaeda and gave them free reign. In fact, after 9-11, the states said to uh, the Taliban, give up bin Laden, and they said, we can't do that. Mr. Bin Laden is our guest, and we'll deal with him, thank you very much. And President Bush says, no, you won't, we'll deal with him. Hence the American invasion of Afghanistan in October of 2001. Hence the 10-year manhunt for bin Laden that finally ended in May 2011 when he was found next door in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. So Ratnadeep says, I don't know if you've read this uh, document um, by the U.S. think tank, but they mentioned the Haqqani Network forming a new unit with Al-Qaeda. So the Haqqani Network was also a gang of jihadis in Afghanistan, somewhat separate than than Al-Qaeda. But when when push comes to shove, Ratnadeep, they're they're all kind of sharing the same agenda. They may fight with each other periodically, and they may not like each other periodically, but they all sing from the same song sheet. They're all Islamist extremists. Uh, some of them are violent Islamist extremists like Al-Qaeda. Uh, and they want to bring Afghanistan back to somewhere around the 13th century. Um, there's no there's no easier way of putting that kind of thing. So, so JB says, since you seem to appreciate analyzing video games, you should take a look into Metal Gear Solid Five, which is all about Afghanistan and espionage. Totally. Okay. You send me a link, uh, JB, and I'll have a look at it. Bill. 
it's okay. Welcome back. You're not late. Uh, you're just in time because you're good. Because Bill, I just talked about Afghanistan for 17 minutes in your absence, uh, and because you're late, um, you are going to have to solve Afghanistan for us. You were there for a year back in right. So we're all going to sit back and we're going to let Bill tell us what to do about Afghanistan. So um, I'll just play the um, Jeopardy theme here while we allow Bill to to weigh in. Do 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 do. Do, do, do. Right, you know what? My voice is terrible. Actually, I'm just kidding, Bill. I'm not expecting an answer from you tonight. But Bill knows that the Haqqani is run by the ISI, which in fact is the Pakistani Intelligence Service. Pakistan is known to have an incredibly um, large influence in Afghanistan, has had for decades. <laughs> so Bill, Bill's solution is start over take two. It's a good point, Bill. I, how far back do you want to start over? Because some would say... You know, Afghanistan has this legitimate reputation as the graveyard of empires. Uh, the Soviets were, were hammered by them in the 1980s, the original Al-Qaeda and the so-called Afghan Arabs. Uh, the Brits and the Russians were hammered by the Afghans in the 1860s. Was it 1870s, 1840s? Somewhere in the 19th century. Wasn't there at one point only one British soldier was allowed alive to basically crawl back to his, his fort and say, by the way, boys, the rest of the, rest of the men have been slaughtered by the, by the Afghans. Um, want to go back to Alexander the Great? Because that's where he ended his campaign. He died somewhere in modern-day India slash Pakistan slash Afghanistan. So maybe Bill's right. We should go over to um, to Take Two, but uh, Take Two would have to be about 300 BC. So if we're going to go that far back, maybe there is some, some response to this. So Dean says, my thoughts are to provide support uh, in non-military ways, intel and expertise would be the way I would do it. But in doing this, it would almost be hands-off. Like you said, no easy answer. Yeah, um, exactly, no easy answer. And, and, you know, and if you are even providing intel, that could be construed as overt military assistance, which would mean that the uh, people fighting the Afghan government would still see you as a target, as a potential enemy. So... I don't know. It's um, I didn't. I didn't come here tonight to give you an answer on Afghanistan. I really didn't. It's just, I I think a couple things are, are important about Afghanistan in, in April of 2021. Ain't nobody's talking about it anymore. It's like we've grown tired uh, of Afghanistan, and maybe there's some truth to that. That's all we've heard about since 9/11. So everyone wants to focus on what happened on January the 6th in the Capitol or what's happening with black people being killed in the United States by law enforcement or, you know, why were this the Proud Boys here in Canada or maybe it's COVID fatigue or whatever kind of thing. Secondly, is, is this unwarranted optimism uh, when it comes to what to do in Afghanistan? I can say this article, it says, just decentralize the government and that's going to resolve your problems. Like, who would be so naive to say that? It just, it, it beggars disbelief why someone would think that would be, you know, it, whether it's a good idea or not, it's irrelevant. But why it would be the idea, the priority idea for April 2021 to simply devolve power from the Karzai government to the provinces and to the major cities that's somehow going to set Afghanistan on the road to peace. Oh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a political scientist. Maybe there's, there's something to this. But it just strikes me as an overly simplistic suggestion for an overly complicated situation. I don't know. If you're just joining us, my name is Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former analyst with CSIS and CSE in Canada. If it's your first time, welcome. We hope you subscribe to the channel. If it's if you're back, welcome back. 
Check out the website, borealisthreatenedrisk.com as well for all kinds of information. We started talking about Afghanistan and we are still talking about Afghanistan if I go by the comments still. Um, some Barney and friends. Thanks, Iceberg. That might be that might be a, a bit of a solution. I'm not sure. I welcome back. Whether the U.S. would leave or stay depends on the strategic objective, which is determined ultimately by Congress and the president, which changes every two to four years, which I think is a really, really good point, Aiden. Um, you know, th- this takes a long-term solution and a four-year electoral cycle, sorry, a two-year electoral cycle, not four-year, because the presidential election starts two years into the mandate. Joe Biden, if he's still alive because he's in the 70s, will start his re-election campaign in 2022. Not 2023, and sure as hell, not 2024. So you only really have two years to get things accomplished before you're back on the hustings trying to get reelected. So yeah, there is no, we don't have that kind of uh, inability to, to, to look for, 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 for long-term solutions. And as, as the Taliban you know, has reminded us, we're going to be here forever. You guys are going away. We're just going to wait you out until you go away. And they know that when they do that, that they're actually going to take power. Okay, last more comments here. Yes, you're right, Centurion. Welcome back. I did not come here with answers. I came just to remind us the situation is still crappy. Absolutely. Um, Bill says, interesting. You look at Kabul in the 1960s and 70s. It was very cosmopolitan. Women were mingling and working with men. It's amazing how it's the back out of the talent. You know, Bill, you're absolutely right. I think Afghanistan in the 60s and 70s was seen almost as a role model in the same way Lebanon was, the Paris of the Middle East. And I think these nations, uh, unfortunately, through the rise in fundamentalism, kind of starting in 1979, if you haven't heard me say this before, 1979 was a pivotal year in the history of terrorism. It was, there were three major events that took place that year. There was, of course, the Iranian Revolution in February, the overthrow of the Shah, the overthrow of a 2,500-year dynasty or a series of dynasties in Iran, the, the monarchs, the Shahs. It was also, of course, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, in December, on Boxing Day or Christmas Day of 79. And the event that everyone forgets about, in November of 79, a bunch of Islamist extremists took by force the Grand Mosque in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia, and held it for the better part of a couple of weeks before they were finally taken out thanks to French Special Forces. And in response, uh, the Saudi government began uh, sending, uh, began, um, it became more fundamentalist and more intolerant in its Islamic beliefs and started sending preachers around the world to teach their own intolerant view of Islam. That's the event everyone forgets in the aftermath, and that's really, in many ways, not the cause of, but a major contributor to modernism and extremism, the Saudi reaction to the Grand Mosque seizure in November of, of 1979. So I think from that point, you, you know, the point you raise, uh, Bill, about Kabul is absolutely true, uh, and it hasn't been a very pleasant place since then. Certainly not since the, the Soviets decided to go in in 1979, which was a dumb decision by the Soviets. Olivier, welcome back. At the end of the day, the Canadian government at the political level needs to make a clear decision as to where our limited resources needs to be focused for real. I'm glad you raised that point. I was thinking about this today, guys. I was thinking about sort of how we're doing uh, during the pandemic. So don't worry, I'm getting this, this is going to come back to national security in a second, trust me. There were those that said when the pandemic became obvious back in um, January of last year, it's already been almost a year and a half, that what was required by Canada and by other Western nations, in fact, all nations, was the same effort that we pulled off from 1939 to 1945, i.e. there had to be a all, all people on deck, single focus, we will, we will stop everything but 
the control of the pandemic, the development of um, vaccines, and the distribution of those vaccines ASAP. Everything else becomes secondary. And I think it, it's, it can be fairly said that the Trudeau, excuse me, the Trudeau government did not do that. It did a whole bunch of other things, but it did not have that sort of full court press in terms of the COVID um, virus and the efforts to combat it. Now, why is this important? Because whenever you're in government, there are a gazillion cons- uh, competing priorities around the cabinet table. All the ministers have their own departments and they have people screaming at them all the time. We need money for this. We need money for that. Blah, 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 blah. Why aren't you supporting us? Why aren't you giving us more resources? And then they hash out around the cabinet table. Who's going to get what on what day and in what amount? That includes national security. It can be fairly said, and this is kind of, you know, getting back to what Ratnadeep said about, you know, a moral obligation that Canada has to Afghanistan. I think in a perfect world, we probably do have some kind of a moral obligation, whatever that term means to, 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 to all of you. But I think that decisions have to be made because you have to realize, you know, that we here in Canada, very, very much a middle power. We're not, we're not, we're not a superpower. We're not even a major power. We're a middle power can only do so much with the resources, the money and the people we have. And and, and let me, let me give you a very concrete example of that. I think I've referred to this before. When I worked in intelligence in the 1980s and 1990s, um, we would have requirements meetings with our clients, i.e. senior government officials. And we'd ask them, what do you want us to provide you with? What kinds of intelligence do you need? What are your priority issues or nations or whatever kind of thing? And they come back to us with 110 priorities. And we say to them, we can't do 100. We don't have the resources to do 110 priorities. The elections in Ghana this year might be your priority because you're the desk officer for Ghana at Global Affairs Canada, but they're not a national priority. You'll have to find your information somewhere else. So it does apply to intelligence. And we could fairly ask uh, in, in, in the time of a pandemic where, I mean, what, what are the, what are the uh, worldwide deaths already up to? It's, it's in the millions. Should we have been spending money on other things, including security intelligence? when the pandemic should have required all of our resources. So to get back to, I guess, Ratnadeep's question and Dean's question, maybe the government has to, you know, cut bait. Say, you know what? We were there. We made a contribution. By the way, Canadian Special Forces are still in Iraq killing Islamic State. I just saw that this morning on CTV. My feeling is a dead terrorist is a good terrorist. I don't have a problem with that. But should we be spending money on Canadian special forces in Iraq to target ISIS, which is, yes, is still a very lethal terrorist group, despite what everyone in the world seems to be telling you right now, that ISIS has been defeated when we have a pandemic to fight here in Canada? In other words, can we afford to do it all? And I think the answer is no. We can't afford to do it all. And, and I, I might this may sound a little bit cruel, but I always got the impression when I worked in the government that a lot of people wanted Canada to be all things to all people. And I think there was sort of a a desire to be seen to be playing in a larger sandbox and to be more important than we really were. And and don't don't get me wrong, I think there's a lot of great Canadians with a lot of great ideas, but I don't think this should have been our priority. That that that's just this is my whole opinion.